Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Last week, we discussed the Great Fire of London of 1666. Well, London decided they couldn't leave well enough alone, and they needed to have a sequel. Well, somebody else decided they needed to have a sequel, but that's besides the point. This week, we are discussing the second Great Fire of London, the one that has the big budget and all the explosions and all the big-named actors and all the people that everybody knows. This is the second Great Fire of London that began on December 29th, 1940. This one was just a little bit different than the last one. Same area, but ever so slightly different, because what? why would you have a sequel without taking what made the first one so great? There were no major concerns of building materials or buildings built too close together or weather or anything of that nature. The only concern prior to the fire were, the concern that everyone has, the Nazis. You see, the Second Great Fire of London started during the middle of what became known as the Blitz. The Blitz was a bombing campaign by the Nazis of the United Kingdom during World War II for the majority of 1940 and part of 1941. Depending on who you ask, it was either part of the Battle of Britain or began after the Battle of Britain. Personally, I'm going to treat it as different than the Battle of Britain because there's a clear dividing line in my mind, but I'll get to that. The Battle of Britain was a battle between the United Kingdom and Nazi Germany. It was the first major military campaign to be fought entirely in the air. It began on basically July 10, 1940 and lasted until at least Halloween of 1940. There are some people that say that it lasted until 1941. They include the Blitz as part of the Battle of Britain, but I'm not going to do that because I see it as two different campaigns. The primary goal of the Luftwaffe was to break the United Kingdom's control of the air above the English Channel and the North Sea. For those who aren't great at geography, the North Sea is the sea east of the British Isles and north of Belgium, Germany, and the rest, and west of Norway and Sweden and that whole thing. At this point in 1940, Nazi Germany had control of France, the Netherlands, Belgium, and a whole host of other places, and were looking to press their advantage against the UK. But in order to do so, Nazi Germany would have to seize control of the English Channel and the North Sea, as it was very firmly under British control. And in order to do that, they needed to break the UK's air superiority over both those bodies of water. Otherwise, any amphibian assault they tried would be bombed mercilessly from the air as well as met with fierce resistance on the sea. If there's no defense in the air, they can just take it to the water and they have air superiority to break England's fleet. If they don't, then they're really going to struggle getting across the English Channel, which is notoriously difficult for invaders of any kind. So, the dates for the Battle of Britain are very fluid, but the battle more or less began on July 10th. It started with small-scale raids by fighters and the likes from Nazi Germany. This lasted for a bit before it switched to attacks on ports and coastal airfields. The attacks on the shipments proved to be a major issue for the UK, and they lost multiple shipments of coal in the water. They had to switch to moving coal only by rail, which is doable but isn't how they wanted to do it. By late July and early August, the Nazi command were receiving reports that the Royal Air Force was on the verge of defeat. 
so they decided on a new tactic. The plan, the plan, was to destroy radar capabilities in England. Well, it should have been to attack radar capabilities in England. But all they really did was attack the radar towers, which only took them off for about six hours. They didn't attack any of the supporting infrastructure for whatever reason. Seems like the tower is the least difficult part to replace. If you're going to try and take out radars, you need to take out all of the support capabilities around it. I mean, they just put up a new tower. It's the easiest part. They don't have to lay new telephone wires. They don't have to do any of that. Literally just put the tower back up. Seems to be a waste of time, to be honest. It's a waste of bombs. But whatever. After that, they continued raids and bombing campaigns in an effort to break the Royal Air Force. To make a long story short, it didn't really work. To give kind of an idea of why it didn't really work, one RAF pilot, Royal Air Force pilot, was shot down six different times during the Battle of Britain, but was able to be to just keep going because he was crash landing in Britain, which that guy has got to be the luckiest, most insane person ever. Getting shot down once would be traumatizing enough. And, I mean, it wasn't like planes in 1940 had great safety standards. You get shot down, you basically hope you crash land in something that's soft enough, enough that doesn't kill you or land in the water and hope you can get out of your plane before you drown. I mean, some people didn't even have parachutes. So, six times. That's crazy. And I'd love to give you this man's name, but he decided that he wasn't a hero, so he was going to give his story anonymously. And the sixth time he got shot down, he refused to talk about because, quote, absolutely nothing happened. So apparently getting shot down now is just, that's just an everyday thing for him. And the last one was completely uneventful, so he just doesn't want to talk about it. One of the times he got shot down, he felt bad because he landed the plane on the beach in England, but on the other side of the barbed wire fence from where they hadn't done scans for mines dropped by German planes. So they couldn't figure out how to get it back across the barbed wire fence and to the area that had been checked for mines. And he felt bad because he wasted so much money landing the plane there and they can't use it at the moment. It's, it's a really wonderful example of how the British were able to fight the Battle of Britain because they just had Pilots that got shot down, landed in England, and would be back at an airport half hour later, however long it took to drive there. German pilots that were shot down landed in Britain or in the ocean and were picked up and held as prisoners of war. They didn't have the option of bailing out or crash landing and being back at a friendly airport in 30 minutes, back in a plane, and back up and fighting again. All that makes it seem like the battle was going well for Britain really wasn't going well. It also wasn't going terribly. I mean, in the face of what would essentially be the destruction of your country and being able to fight off Germany for that long when a good chunk of Western Europe hadn't been able to do that, you can kind of chalk that up to a victory. But, I mean, they were still getting, they were still losing planes at a high rate. They were losing pilots at a high rate. It just wasn't going super well. But it also wasn't going super well for Nazi Germany. It was more or less a stalemate. The 
Luftwaffe would damage airports and radar towers, and the British would fix them and have them up and running a few hours later, only for the next night for them to be damaged again and then have to repeat the process over and over again. They were essentially losing the same amount of planes as each other, and that's when it really kind of switched over from being the Battle of Britain to becoming the Blitz. The Blitz was presented to German citizens as reprisal for a British bombing of Berlin that had killed civilians on August 25, 1940. Originally, Adolf Hitler had resisted the plan to bomb London. Everyone knows who Hitler is, I hope. But after the bombing of Berlin and continued raids of Berlin by UK planes, he approved the plan and framed it as revenge. After a particularly brutal day of air battle on September 15, 1940, the Nazis decided that was enough and postponed their plans for an invasion of England. They also started to swing more towards nighttime raids, and that's really when this becomes the Blitz rather than the Battle of Britain, because they were just bombing raids. They weren't an actual battle anymore. The Blitz, for all intents and purposes, was an all-out bombing campaign against the British. What began as a strategy to target war production targets, public utilities, and shipments of food and supplies shifted to a strategy of essentially, if you can see it, blow it up. Which then shifted to a strategy of, we don't really care how you destroy it, just do it. While not specifically told to attack civilians and civilian targets, I'm not super into the whole idea of giving Nazis the benefit of the doubt on the whole not purposely attacking civilians things, you know, the rest of World War II. So, especially, especially as they started to drop incendiary bombs all over London. The official orders come down from Nazi High Command were to target civilian morale, which included destroying things the civilians needed, but not harming the civilians themselves, which seems to be nearly impossible to do from a plane in 1940, but... I guess we're supposed to take them at their word, and I'm not one for taking Nazis at their word. Basically, from September of 1940 to May of 1941, London was bombed almost every night. Now, let's think about this. You're being bombed constantly. Everything you do is being targeted at night, and it's being blown up. So what would your tactic be to prevent that from happening? spread everything out, make them have to hit as many targets as they can, and make it so they can only do it in a short amount of time. So if you've got a bunch of targets, they've only got a short amount of time to fly over there, get shot at by anti-aircraft weapons. They also have barely enough fuel because the planes the Nazis used at the time barely had enough fuel to make it from mainland Europe to London, drop their payload, then travel back. So... They've only got a short amount of time to do as much damage as possible. And if you make a whole bunch of small targets, then they're going to have to pick and choose carefully which ones they can actually hit, and that's going to take up time. This proved to be effective, but it also forced the Nazis to change tactics. So, let's do another thought. If you're faced with a target that is spread out, and you've only got a small amount of time to hit the target... What do you do? Well, if it were me, you blow up everything. You get the biggest bombs or the most bombs and you drop them all as fast as you can in as wide an area as you can and then you fly away. 
And that's exactly what they did. They went from using small targeted bombs to a bomb that was called Satan that would level an entire residential block. Like I said, they weren't told to attack civilians, but it's not like anyone stopped them. The other thing they did with increasing regularity was use incendiary bombs. By December, one group of squadrons was using incendiary bombs as up up to 92% of all bombs dropped. Captured and interrogated German air crews also indicated that they had purposely targeted homes of industrial workers. Now, if you're being told to target civilian morale, but not actually target civilians, it's kind of hard to not target civilians when you're actually targeting their houses. Because most people at night are in their house, and if you're targeting their houses, you're going to kill civilians. Like I said, not going to take the Nazis at their word. This all came to a head on the night of December 29th, 1940. At approximately 6.17 p.m., 136 bombers were sent by the Nazis to raid the city of London yet again. The bombers dropped approximately 100,000 bombs on the city that night. A large portion of those bombs were incendiary. That is a lot of bombs and a lot, lot of fire. The raid itself only lasted about three hours. I say only lasted about three hours, like having 100,000 bombs dropped on you in a three-hour period is a short time. But basically by 9.30, the city was burning. At one point during the raid, a U.S. war reporter telegraphed his office back in the States with the now infamous line, The Second Great Fire of London has begun. Interestingly, the raids were primarily in the footprint of what was the Great Fire of London of 1666. Almost all of the bombs were focused within what would have been the old Roman walls of the city that had long since been gone. In this area of London were non-residential buildings. These were primarily offices, various warehouses, churches, things of that nature. Also in this area of town was the rebuilt St. Paul's Cathedral, which you'll remember from the original Great Fire of London, caught on fire because the scaffolding around it burned and it was filled with books and other random stuff from neighboring stores. Now, of course, London had a fire watcher's order to have often volunteers walk the perimeter on places that may be hit. This makes sense. If the Germans are going to be using incendiary bombs, you need to have somebody out on fire watch to watch for where those bombs hit and may cause Great Fire of London. Unfortunately, the Fire Watchers order applied to places of work with at least 30 employees, warehouses greater than 50,000 cubic feet, and sawmills or timber yards with more than 50,000 cubic feet. Now that makes sense because if you think about it, those are going to be large, large areas with a lot of flammables in them. You've got sawmills and warehouses that are going to be probably full of flammable material creating a fire that they really don't have the manpower because everyone's being bombed and trying to hide from the bombs or the water or suppression tactics to be able to get a fire that large out it makes sense unfortunately that fire watch covered basically everywhere that was part, was not part of this raid 
which seriously hampered the response to the more than 1,500 fires that started during the raid in the heart of London. And I've been investigating fires for five, almost six years now, and I have been on approximately 700 fire scenes, give or take a few. So that's double what I've seen, and that's all I do year-round. This raid caused immense damage to an already immensely damaged city. The fires raged everywhere while people scrambled to respond. Firefighters rushed to the area to try and stamp down the now raging inferno. And of course, because why not, there was a water shortage. The primary water main in the city had been bombed, rendering it almost useless. And then, so many different companies were trying to pull water from the system that was barely functioning as it is, that the water pressure dropped to be completely useless. And then, on top of that, the Thames was at low tide, making it ridiculously difficult to get water from even the river. So, they're screwed, basically. At some point in the raid, St. Paul's Cathedral and the surrounding area were hit by at least 28 incendiary bombs. One incendiary bomb is going to cause problems. 28 of them is going to cause a lot of problems. Winston Churchill then issued a message saying, St. Paul's must be saved at all costs. It has been rumored that Churchill ordered all firefighters to abandon fighting any other fire besides the ones raging around St. Paul's Cathedral. So, you've got the firefighters on the outside of St. Paul's Cathedral trying to put out the fires surrounding the building. Within the cathedral itself... The prevention of fire spreading fell to a group of volunteers known as St. Paul's Watch. Most of these volunteers weren't even firefighters. They were architects. They volunteered because they knew where the weaknesses of the building were. These brave volunteers spent the night extinguishing fires inside the building and doing everything they could to protect the building. With the fires raging around everywhere and the cathedral hit by so many incendiary bombs, it seemed like the cathedral would be lost again. But... I'll let legendary American correspondent Ernie Pyle describe what happened next. Into the dark, shadowed spaces below us, while we watched, whole batches of incendiary bombs fell. We saw two dozen go off in two seconds. They flashed terrifically, then quickly simmered down to pinpoints of dazzling white burning ferociously. The greatest of all the fires was directly in front of us. Flames seemed to whip hundreds of feet into the air. Pinkish-white smoke ballooned upward in a great cloud, and out of this cloud there gradually took a shape. So faintly at first that we weren't sure we saw correctly, the gigantic dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. St. Paul's was surrounded by fire, but it came through. It stood there in its enormous proportions, growing slowly clearer and clearer, the way objects take shape at dawn. It was like a picture of some miraculous figure that appears before peace-hungry soldiers on a battlefield. St. Paul's was saved and became an icon for British resolve throughout the rest of the Blitz and the war effort in general. So there's one quick thing I wanted to mention about Ernie Pyle's description of the raid over London that night. Is he talked about how it would explode, flash, and then simmer down to points of dazzling white. The reason that it was dazzling white is that Germans used an incendiary bomb that was made of magnesium. 
when magnesium burns, it burns a very, very bright white, and it burns fairly hot. Magnesium burns at a temperature of 5,610 degrees Fahrenheit. Wood, on the other hand, when it gets to basically its hottest temperature, burns at a little over 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, the other issue with having a magnesium fire, which is essentially what these were, is that you cannot extinguish magnesium with water. When you put water on magnesium, it reacts so violently, it splits the water molecule in half. So you're left with oxygen and hydrogen. Now, in a fire, you need oxygen, obviously. You need a fuel source. You need a heat source. And you need the chemical reaction to be uninterrupted. The literal definition of fire is a rapid chemical reaction involving release of heat and light in varying intensities. So when you have an oxygen, you have more oxygen for the already burning fire. And then when you have hydrogen, you have a fuel that is sitting there that is ready to explode. To sum up, water on magnesium fire, bad time. So how do we extinguish it? Well, you have to eliminate one of the sides of the fire tetrahedron. Yes, I know everyone was taught fire triangle. That is now incorrect. It is now a fire tetrahedron. The sides are now fuel, heat, oxygen, and the chemical reaction of the burning. To give a brief explanation as to why they added the fourth side to the fire triangle, you need to have the continued chemical reaction in order to have the fire continue to burn. So, in practice, in order to stop a fire, you need to remove one of the sides. So, foam or sand will remove the oxygen from the fire. Makes sense. Also, carbon dioxide can remove the oxygen from the fire. Water drops the heat. It also can disperse the fuel or spread the fuel away from the heat, thus extinguishing the fire. You can also physically remove the fuel from the heat source or the flames and extinguish the fire. You can also use what's called halon that will create a barrier of inert gas between the fuel and the oxygen and the heat source, thereby interrupting the chemical process and extinguishing the fire, essentially. That is why they made the change. So, in order to put out the fire, you need to remove one of those things. What they did in World War II was volunteers would carry around bags of sand to put on the burning magnesium to extinguish the magnesium because putting the sand on it eliminates the oxygen from interacting with the magnesium because when magnesium starts to burn, it reacts violently with the oxygen in the air and will continue to burn at a very, very high temperature, as we discussed. The other thing with incendiary bombs in World War II, especially with the Nazis, is they would have the magnesium in them, and then they would also have a small explosive charge. So, when they landed on roofs, they would explode, and then the explosion would have the combined effect of pushing the magnesium through the roof and also igniting the magnesium because magnesium needs a significant amount of energy to start burning. Therefore, you've got an explosion to do damage and put the magnesium that's currently burning inside of the house to make a bigger fire. 
160 civilians died in the raid. 14 firefighters responded to their last call and lost their lives fighting the fire. 500 people were injured in total, half of those firefighters. So that's basically a long-winded way of explaining why Ernie Pyle said that there were a blinding white burning after they viewed the incendiary bombs exploding. And I'm very sorry about the fire tetrahedron. I don't make the rules. I just follow them. But anyway, finally, they were able to extinguish most of the fires burning within the city. But unfortunately, not without great loss. The city lost 31 guild halls, 19 churches, and essentially the entire publishing industry in London. It is estimated that 5 million books were burned during the fire. One painful story from the fire, an artist by the name Leonard Rosamond was serving with the Auxiliary Fire Service on the night of the raid. He was fighting a fire on Shoe Lane when he was relieved of his hose by two young firefighters. As soon as Rosamond handed off the hose and started to walk away, a nearby wall collapsed and killed one of the firefighters. All in all, the Second Great Fire of London eventually consumed a larger area of London than the First Great Fire of London. It also had a higher officially confirmed death toll, like all good sequels do. It would be remiss not to mention the eventual firebombings of German cities near the end of the war, especially the bombing of Dresden in 1945. While not often specifically brought up as retaliation for the firebombing of London, it is hard not to draw a similar conclusion that those attacks were cold-blooded revenge upon civilian populations. Especially with the widespread and almost indiscriminate bombing of civilian areas. Especially in Dresden. Most of those were war refugees. Most of those were not military targets. It's really hard not to draw the conclusion that was nothing but revenge. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you for listening to Disastrous History. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at DisastrousHSTRY and on Instagram at Disastrous History. Stay safe and remember to change your smoke detector batteries. <laughs>